0: welcome to Midlife Athlete Podcast. Uh, I'm uh, Jason Smith and as ever I'm joined by my co-host Greg. How are you Greg?
1: Very well. I am looking forward to today. It's going to be an inspirational chat today I think.
0: Yeah I mean I, I was reflecting Greg that we've talked about Different things like importance of exercise, importance of exercise for prostate cancer, and, and various mm. other things. Mm. And uh, we've talked about mindsets.
1: Um, well, exercise is medicine, isn't it? So
0: exercise is medicine. That's right. <laughs> I can't think of a, a, a more extraordinary and inspiring way to capture all of that than than our next guest. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm so pleased to welcome Kevin Weber. Kevin welcome to midlife athlete podcast hi thanks for having me on no it's an absolute pleasure um, you've written a, a book called dead man running um, and I don't we don't want to kind of give away if you like the whole story straight away um, <clears throat> so I think what might be quite a good place to start is um, it' is kind of before the watershed moment in 2014. And the listeners will find out what that watershed moment is, but what what was your sort of um, athletic life like, if you like, uh, before 2014?
2: I've always been someone that likes sport, but never been any good at it. You know, I was kind of like 14th choice for the football team at school. Um, <laughs> and you, know, the only you thing should have taken
1: that rugby. I
2: was always the, well, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> <I> <laughs> the rugby league, of course. But yeah, we we're, were okay. And then at running, I was I was okay at running though, and we used to have like a mile race at school, and I, I used to win it. I think not because I was the best at running, but because I had a already then had a mental toughness about wanting to finish the race and do as good as I could all way all the way through. So I wasn't gonna slow down when it got hard. If it was just a mental thing, I was going to keep going. So even though the muscles were burning and all the things you get when you try and run uh, fast and long, um, I wasn't going to leave up just because it hurt. And I also think I, I won, to be honest, because all the, the flash athletes found it too much like hard work and they ran the 100 metres instead. Um, <laughs> and then I left school like, you know, you know, you do. I, I did a lot of yacht racing. Um I did yacht racing and dinghy sailing. and And, again, I wasn't a great – dinghy sailor but yacht racing I was part of a crew and we were we were quite successful as a crew we won lots and lots of races but I I realized I was quite good at being part of a team rather than as a solo I had something to bring but I wasn't the complete picture and part of that again was that mental toughness that you know for example when it was rough at sea I was the only one that could go below and cook without getting seasick Um, because in my head it was a something I had to do we had to eat someone had to go downstairs why not me and so I'd go into the galley when everything was moving all over the place and I would, would sort of boil some water or whatever it might be for the food we were going to eat. And then, you know, I, I worked for Nat West, I joined the bank, and kind of that got in the way of all of my sporting stuff until I got to about 20 years old. And then a friend of mine said that uh, his rugby team were were playing and he couldn't play because he was injured. Did I fancy coming down watching and have a beer? And I thought, that sounds great looking – Watching some sport and having a beer. Now, what better way to spend a uh, Saturday afternoon? And of course, as it happens at lower team rugby, they're one short. And well, Kev, can you play rugby? I said, No, I never played in my life, but I know you can't pass forward and you have to tackle people. And I said, Oh, well, I know. So that'll do. They stuck me on the wing and I played twice on the wing. And then next thing I know, I'm playing second row. <laughs> and they say, I said, What do I do? They said, Well, pushing the scrum, jump the line out, and run off the ball. And I then did that for the next 12 years um and i ended up being i was bottom team captain and i loved the, the again the challenge organizational bit getting 15 guys on the pitch every every week trying our best to win um and even sort of tactics and stuff even though i didn't know about rugby i could work out some basic tactics so i quite enjoyed that and along the way um the rugby club had a half marathon it used to organize every year I had about 600 people would enter and someone said to me "Yo, you should run that kevin i I thought, well, okay then. Having never actually ever run apart from the mile at school, so I hadn't run for running's sake, um, probably for four or five years. And I ran this half marathon without any training. And I remember I did it in one hour fifty nine minutes and about forty eight seconds, and was quite pleased that I'd beaten two hours on the basis. I, you know, I hadn't done any running, but then I kind of got the bug. I'm a bit compulsive. I'm always a bit a bit all or nothing. So I thought oh, I quite like this running bit. So I started running every weekend. So I would play rugby Saturday and I'd run a 10K or a half marathon every weekend. Oh, yeah. Um, and really, I, I really enjoyed it. And, I, you know, I was younger and fitter um, and I played squash in the week and i go rugby train twice a week. So I was probably doing things once a day at least that was sporting and I still wasn't any good, but I just enjoyed it. And, and I guess what I liked about running half marathons was that you know, I think my best ever time was one twenty seven, which is respectable, but it's not, a winning time but i quite like the idea of just doing my best and seeing where they got me i didn't care about the bling in terms of the the one two three but actually just to finish was an achievement as fast as i could and then i got injured playing rugby one match and that was the end of my rugby and my running because i couldn't i tore both my calf muscles in a scrum and that was it i rested sort of started running slowly again they went again rested but just gave up with it and so i had a probably a twelve-year wilderness when I didn't do any sport whatsoever. Which, wow! When I look back was a real bad bit of my life. I mean, I, I started watching <clears throat> football again. I like watching soccer, but it's not the same as actually playing. And I was working quite hard, and I enjoyed my job as a manager at the bank, and that, that was great. And then one day, one of my—I was probably about forty-four, I guess so, forty-four years old. One of my wife's friends died age 40 and on the day of the funeral she said to me you'd all talk about running a marathon but you never did you know you should try and see if you can run again because you know you just never know you know you never know if you'll ever get the chance again if you don't try now and I just thought actually that makes sense I haven't tried for ages to try and run so I went to a physio which is what I should have done 12 years before and he basically you know what it's now obvious to me but I was running like a policeman at 10 to 2 and he basically said the way I was running, I was putting a straight a sideways, a lateral strain on my calf muscles. That was okay for jogging around a rugby pitch, but when I had to go in a straight, when I was going in a straight line, they weren't ready for it. So in the scrum when they both snapped, it's because I they weren't strong enough in that direction. So he, I spent six months on one of those beasts of a cross trainer. I wasn't allowed to run, so I was doing at the end I was doing two hours a day, holding the hand and was watching Telly in the gym with my, those feet in the plates, pushing my feet parallel with the, the holders, if you like, where your feet go, and gradually getting my natural leg stance to be straight rather than 10 to 2. Now I'm actually about 5 past 12, so I'm not quite <laughs> 10 to 2 anymore. And my left leg's fine, but my right leg's still slightly outwards. So then he said, right now you can run. And I thought, great, I'll enter a marathon then. Of course, when you haven't got any notice, you can't get in any of the big marathons. So I found one in uh, Orpington in Kent, and all my friends said, oh, it's the crowds that keep you going, and that'd be great. Everyone cheers you (laughs) on. Of course, the Orpington Marathon was 80 people and two 13.1-mile laps of suburbia. (laughs) I had no experience of running a marathon. I think I did the first lap in about 140-something, and I thought, this is great. I'm going to do a sub-four-hour marathon for my first marathon got about two miles further on, hit the wall, had no gels. There was a water station every six and a half miles, and that was it, just cups of water. And I absolutely died. And somehow, again, I managed to get myself through. I remember walking down a road thinking, if a car stops now and says, do you want to get in for a lift, I'd say yes. This is about mile 20. But but even then, I was thinking, no, I want to finish it. I want to say I've done a marathon. And so I kind of dug deep and I walked around and I jogged and I forced myself to jog a bit and I walked a bit. I think I finished about four hours, 16. And so the second half marathon was horrendous, about two and a quarter hours, but I finished. And then once again, I got the bug. So then I entered London and Brighton and a whole bunch of other marathons and absolutely loved it. And, And I was working pretty hard and long hours. So I was only managing to train probably three times a week. And I couldn't beat four hours. I kept on doing 402, 44, 46, 402, just never could get four hours. And then one year, I thought, you know, I'm really going to try hard, and I got injured again. And then I came back from the injury, and I thought, Do you know, as you get older, by then I was probably 40, I was 48, and I thought, as you get older, running faster is not always sensible for someone like me, but maybe running further is. So I entered the Brighton Marathon, as a warm-up, to run London to Brighton, which was 100k. And so I thought, that would do, I'll do that. So um, I ran Brighton, and because of the training for the 100k, I did Brighton in 3.47, so my only ever sub-four-hour marathon. So I actually knocked, you know, 14, 15 minutes off of my best time before by training for a longer distance. And then ran London to Brighton, and it was just like running my first marathon all over again, naively stupid. I ran too much at the start, I ran up hills, I didn't, Hydrate properly and got to about kilometer 58 and just died again. And then it was at that digging deep, everything hurting, walk a bit, run a bit, walk a bit, run a bit, get yourself through to the finish. And I think I finished in the end in about 15 hours, which I suppose is okay for 100K, mm. um, but it could have been so much better. I did see things. I stopped at checkpoints for half an hour, I think one wow, of them, just chatting and eating. You know, I had a massage halfway through the race, I had a massage then. Why not? And so it was great. But then again, I had the bug of ultras. I thought, yeah, oh, I've got to do this. This is fantastic. And I've been raising a few quid for charity along the way, and that made me feel quite good. And thought this is this is the way forward. So I entered a hundred and twenty K race called The Wall for 2015. And also the Brighton Marathon again as a warm-up in, in April, twenty fifteen. And then I went on Summer Hotel in, in twenty fourteen and things changed. Mm. Just before we get on to what changed
0: what you talked about the sort of your mindset um where where do you think that sort of um gritty mindset sort of came from
2: i was as a kid i was in the scouts in the cubs and the scouts and then what used to be called the venture scouts i think it's now called the explorers and it gave me i think a tenacity about not giving up when things were hard there were things we did in the scouts. We were sea scouts. So we did a lot of rowing, sailing, canoeing um, on the Thames. And there were lots of times when you just felt this is hard work. But if you're in a boat rowing with two other or three other guys, and we're not talking Oxford and Cambridge boats, we're talking big fat whalers. Um, and you've got to get back to where you started from. And it's against the current. You you don't really have a choice. You can't really give up no matter how much it hurts. You just have to do it. Otherwise you're not going to get back to base. So it kind of taught me that resilience of rowing and again i you know, go canoeing and you get wet or sailing and you get wet and you get cold and you'd capsize and and again not all scouts did some some scouts just gave up but for me it was just that challenge i want to get back in the boat i want to keep on going it's not you know kind of it's not going to beat me was the the thing if it was physically possible um and, and i've also been always in my life i think from birth pretty much opinionated i someone said to me are you arrogant and i thought arrogance is when you're opinionated and you're not prepared to accept you're wrong but actually I'm wrong quite a lot of the time and I'm quite pleased to be proven wrong if how I'm proven wrong means I learn and I therefore become more right so I've got lots of opinions they're not always right but I like to learn and become physically and mentally stronger through them so I might have a in, you know in running terms I might have an idea that I think works and then someone proves to me it doesn't I think well, actually in that case i would dump that idea because you're right and I'll take your your idea on board and 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 not be cross about being wrong because I only made my opinion out of what I'd read or heard before. And there's no shame in having an opinion if it's wrong, as long as you understand if you're told what's right, you'll change. And that, and again, that tenacity, that, that ability to stand up and be counted sometimes, you know, when I remember sailing once I I was part of this youth project and the toilets got blocked on this 74 foot yacht. And I was what's called a watch leader. I was in charge of six kids and they were from scout groups, borstals schools air cadets and things and i just thought well someone's got to unblock it you know and now i have this belief you should never ask someone to do something unless you're prepared to do it yourself and i thought well i've got to go and unblock it then and you know it's not a pleasant thing unblocking a toilet on a ship <laughs> when it's the wrong kind of stuff in the toilet as well and but <coughs> someone had to do it so i did it and, and it's kind of that thing someone has to do it so and someone has to go first. So don't get me wrong, if it got blocked again, I'd have told someone else to do it. It's not I don't want to become the known as a toilet unblocker, <laughs> but I wouldn't ask someone else to do it unless I'm prepared to do it myself. And that was the the big thing. I had no special skill of unblocking toilets any more than anyone else did. It's just about having a go and doing you know, giving it your best shot. And if the outcome is what you wanted, fantastic. If it's not, then you have to go and learn and have another go.
0: So we get to 2014. <clears throat> What
2: happens in 2014? So I was on summer holiday with my with my family. I, I've got three kids and my eldest was 16. And it was that kind of age where you start thinking, will they come on holiday with you again um, altogether? Because, you know, is sixth form, they might not want to come. So we had kind of the holiday of a lifetime. We went to, to Disney and whatever, we, you know, the kids never been before. And it was a great holiday. But whilst I was there... I started getting up in the night for a wee. And at the time, I've you know, it's probably two or three nights. And I remember being bursting to go to the toilet and then go there and I'd wee for about three seconds. I'd go to bed and about an hour and a half later, it would happen again. And this probably happened every other night. And I, I kind of thought maybe I'm eating something wrong or it's a swimming pool the hotel we're staying in or something. Um, but I thought not much more of it, but I got home to England and it carried on. And then it started feeling uncomfortable. It felt like I was sitting on a golf ball for five minutes here, an hour there, not at all for two days, then another two minutes. And then also when I was having, without being gross, like relations with my wife, everything felt the same, but like nothing came out at the end. And I was, that's a bit strange. So I did what most men don't do, and I got myself off to a doctor's. And he he gave me what I, I now call the doctor's special handshake. <laughs> and, uh, and, and a blood test, which he called a PSA test. And he just said, Oh, I'm I'm looking for a a score of between one and two. So he said it's okay, you're only forty-nine, very unlikely you're gonna score. But it's just you know, the symptoms you said one of them might be prostate cancer. I remember thinking I'm wasting his time now. I'm 49 years old, you know, prostate cancer eighty-year-old men, doesn't it? And my dad had prostate cancer, um, but he got it when he was quite old and it was cured and you know, he died in the end with it not of it so i just didn't really think much about it and i came back to see the doctor a week later and at the peak my dad's score was 12 so at the height of his prostate cancer was 12 mine was 342 on diagnosis jesus and the doctor looked at me and said i'm really sorry you've probably got prostate cancer you know i'm a gp but that tells me there's something very wrong and so i went home and i remember a guy at work had prostate cancer a guy called hugh and he's 50s and about the year before and it had been cured and he was back at work and you know a bit unpleasant he said for a couple of months but actually hey I got through it and life carries on so I was kind of convinced it would be be okay and you have um lots of scans you have an extremely nasty biopsy I'd say it's probably one of the worst experiences of my life um and uh you kind of think that's okay and then you have a more doctor special handshakes. I, I now know avoid doctors with chubby fingers and sovereign rings. <laughs> uh, and, and then we get to November the 6th, 2014, and I'm, my wife and I are seeing a, a, a urologist for the results. And I, and I remember going out the week before buying a pair of pajamas because I, I sleep in boxes, and I just thought, oh, maybe I have to go to the hospital for an operation, maybe a good idea have some pajamas. So all was in pyjamas and there I am. And he said to me, he looks at the screen, he says, I'm really sorry, um, it, the, the cancer's grown really fast. You've got quite a lot of it. It's spread to your chest and your lymph nodes and your pelvis. And I went, oh, I said, well, how long have I got to live then? And he said, oh, two years, if you're lucky, three to four. He said, don't ever think 10. I remember saying, don't ever think 10. And, of course, at that moment, that was just like my wife and I just burst into tears. Um, and after kind of sorting that out for about a minute of, of you know uncontrollable blubbing, you um, kind of said, "Oh, well, you know, talk, shut my hand or, well, good luck, sort of thing." <laughs> and off I went, and we went to another room. And then I saw uh, we sat there for half an hour and just looking at each other, not just shell shocked, I guess. And then the next minute, someone to the door and said, "Actually, you're lucky. There's a an oncologist who'll see you now." because um, normally they wouldn't both be there together. And the oncologist – I always call him Mr. Life. I call the urologist Dr. Death. Um, <laughs> and he was set with him, and he said, "Look, oh, you know, maybe you got two years, but there's other drugs we can use, and there's radiotherapy and stuff. So and you're so young. You know, he said to me, you're too young to, to have the standard treatment. He said, we're going to try something a bit different. And so, okay, so then I – so he said, come back and see me on Monday – so I went out and told my dad that was quite tough because, of course, one of the deals as a parent is that you kind of die before your kids, and there there was me at that point in time likely to die before him. And then the 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 next, you know the worst day of my life was then telling my kids. So it was a Sunday, and I remember just telling them all together. Um, it's really important actually whenever you deliver good or bad news to people, if it's a group or a team or a family you tell them all at the same time because what it does is it means they know there's no favoritism. They know they all hear the same thing, so you don't forget to tell one person one thing and say something else. It means if one of them thinks of a question, they'll all hear the answer. Maybe one of them won't speak up, but one of them will. And also, of course, it's their support network to to sort of stay together, in this case as three kids, to sort of work their way through what's going to come. And so that's really, really important. You know, it's, um, you know, you see things, you're making me redundant at work or you're changing the office structure or you're changing the route of a race or something. You know, nothing worse than one person knowing and then it becomes a rumour. Everyone should know or you don't tell anyone. And that's down to the people who have the knowledge to be really sensible about sharing it in one go because otherwise it plays with your head. Nothing worse than someone telling you something like, you know, on a race that it's going to be different and you don't know if they're just winding you up or if it's hearsay, or if it's the truth. Um, So, yeah, very, very importantly, we'll hear the same thing. So that was quite tough. But I I remember then really making a point to my kids that on that day, I felt fine, and therefore, whilst I feel fine, or if I tell them I'm feeling fine, we just carry on as before. I didn't want them to – I didn't want to sort of spoil their childhood by worrying about dad being dead tomorrow, because it wasn't going to be that quick. And especially, you know, my my, my youngest was nine – by my calculation, you know, he would start senior school without a dad. And I I, I know that some kids never have a dad. But nonetheless, the deal with my family was that they would, you know, that's why I brought them to the world. So they would have a dad until they didn't need a dad anymore sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, that was a very sad day. And then I started radiotherapy, sorry, chemotherapy rather, um, in the middle of January. And I went for a run the week before. And by then I was, you know, I was pretty fit. So I ran 20 miles and just remember thinking this might be the last time I ever go for a run because all the stories I'd now heard, the horror stories of death by prostate cancer opposed to life by prostate cancer, and I couldn't find a good one anywhere. You know, everyone I'd, everyone's blog I'd found on various uh, sites that all were dead. Um, you know, no one was living. I had met a few people living with it that had had it for a year or two and, some were upbeat, but most of them weren't doing anything special. They were just sort of giving up work or struggling with work. They weren't doing any exercise. And there was a morbidity about even the one trying to have the most fun was still this underlying sense of morbidity. And I, and I didn't want that because, to me, why would I want to be upset today if I don't need to be upset today? I wanted today to be as good as it could be, not not worrying about like later on in my life. So I really struggle with that. And... I remember, So I got home, I ran that 20 miles and I thought, that's it, you know, I, I'm now, I'm, I'm succumbing to what everyone tells me I have to succumb to with cancer and chemotherapy, I'm now going to become an introverted, sad, miserable, lonely person that sits there waiting for death and I remember I had, went in for my first chemo session and it is, it is grim, you know, you sit in a room, there's five other people all having various types of chemo put into them in chairs around you, probably with one person with them. So in my case, my wife, and you can see these big IV things going to people's breasts or their arms, or in my case, in my hand in a cannula. And it's bizarre, you know. Your mouth starts tasting metallic as it goes in, and you sort of fingers feel cold. And I remember walking away, shuffling into the car. My wife drove me home, shuffled up the driveway, sat in my chair at home. My wife gave me dinner. Went to bed early. I couldn't sleep because they also give you tons of steroids um, to counteract some of the bad stuff the chemo does to the good parts of your body. So it was like having quadruple espressos all night. So you lie awake, you know, feeling, thinking you're going to die, feeling like rubbish. Nothing, nothing good on the horizon at all. You know, in your head, there's this thing: what's the point? I've got a year of treatment and then a year of dying. So actually, my life has already finished. There is no point going on, and and that night was probably the lowest night I had. I was lying there waiting till my wife fell asleep so I could cry. Um, yeah, just a a terrible, terrible night. And the next morning, I got up, I looked out the bed, felt rubbish, looked out the window, and it was January. and It was cold, and I thought, I'm gonna go for a run. But <laughs> <laughs> can we
0: just what what? What made at that point, bearing in mind what you've just said, what made you think I'm going to go for a run?
2: I think I looked out the window and I thought, this is the crossroads. You know, this is the moment when I decide to be a victim and be like all those other people I'd met and just allow it. Some said they were fighting it, but they weren't. They weren't changing anything in their world to make a difference. They were just sitting there watching the tide coming. Um, and I just, I don't want to be that victim. I don't want to be sitting there as a victim. And actually I have a choice, you know, I, maybe I can run, you know, even though I felt rubbish. And so you know, my wife kind of said, well, the doctor didn't say you can run. I said, well, he didn't say I couldn't. He said, well, she said, well, oh, you never asked, did you? I said, well, <laughs> no. But I remember putting on my running shoes and going out and I managed three miles. I reckon it, I reckon I was doing probably nine-minute kilometers, which is probably the slowest I've ever run. And I went to the local park, ran around the park twice and came back and absolutely shattered, felt so sick. And bear in mind, you know, four days before I'd run 20 miles and felt fine, the difference was from one chemo session, absolutely frightening. But over the moon, had a smile on my face, and I just thought, cancer's taken away so much of my now life and my future life, but it hasn't taken away my running. I can still run. Both feet were in the air for the whole time, and that's a definition of running. And, you know, I I've met people, I met people in rugby actually, you go back a bit, where they were first 15 players, they were great players, and they got to that age where they couldn't play first fifteen rugby anymore. And they would say, Well, if I can't play for the first 15, I don't want to play. And they just stopped playing rugby. Other ones would say, well, if I can't play first 15 rugby, maybe I'll play for the third 15, or my team, the bottom team, and and kind of help them and still have the buzz of rugby. And that's where I kind of was in my running then. I thought, it doesn't matter if I can't run London to Brighton. It doesn't matter if I can't even do a park run. The fact I can go out and just enjoy myself for a few minutes and escape, that's good enough. Doesn't matter how much it hurts physically, mentally, I'm doing something for me. So that was it. So, you know, I then started going out every other day and running a little bit further. So I had a I took a backpack with me and I had warm clothes, some food, my mobile phone, a bit of card like Paddington Bear. If you find me, this is what <laughs> I had no idea what was gonna happen. And I never ran more than about two miles from my house. So I was running big loops because if, if I suddenly felt really, really bad and it happened a few times, I wanted the ability to be able to get home quite quick rather than be stuck, you know, four miles, I we'll have to run four miles back. And then I said to the doctor about about, oh, about week four of chemo, I said, look, I entered the Brighton Marathon before I was ill. I want to run it. And he just looked at me and laughed and said, he said, find me someone else that's run a marathon on your kind of chemo with your kind of cancer. And, I said, and he said, but he said, but if you can and you can train for it, then you can do it. I thought great, so I went home, got on Google. Can't find anyone that's. I mean, I found people run marathons on chemo, but no, no one with stage four terminal cancer, prostate cancer, I, and I couldn't find anyone. Uh, I'm sure it's happened, but I couldn't find anyone. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go for it. You know what, what's going to happen? The worst is I'm going to fall over and die. You know, so that's I'm not going to do that anyway. So, so I have nothing to lose. So I ran a bit further, and I had a, I had a really good mate, Jim, who. Did London to Brighton with me the year before, and he'd always wanted to run a sub four hour marathon, and we'd trained for this sub four hour marathon. And um, he said, Look, "I won't do it." He said, "I'll run the Brighton marathon with you, and I'll be your chaperone." And I won't. We won't do four hours, will we? I said. So, so we ran together, and actually, at the halfway stage, we were bang on a four hour marathon. Um, and then my knee went bizarrely, so not even the chemo bit. My knee went. And we made – I think we did it in 4.36 in the end, which, bear in mind, was 50 minutes slower than a year before. Um, wasn't bad, bear in mind, on week 30 in a chemo. I, and, I think that's uh, an
0: understatement. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: that's, that's the hats off. <laughs> yeah, but, but the thing is, though, even that, you know, it, if you want it enough, you can do it. You know, How many people say they want something in life and then don't achieve it. And the reason why I didn't achieve it was they didn't actually put the effort in. You know, it's not they couldn't have been good enough. They weren't good enough or strong enough because they didn't actually train hard enough or make the right sacrifices or the right choices at times. And so for me, I'm you know, that marathon was so important to me. And I was now fundraising for Prostate Cancer UK. And I raised about £26,000. And in the previous years, I'd run marathons for other cancer charities before I was ill. I'd raised about a thousand pounds a year. It's amazing what a terminal illness does for people's wallets. You know, <laughs> suddenly people respond to me a 10 or respond to me a hundred quid, which was which was lovely. And it and it, you know, goes to the charity. So I finished and felt absolutely fantastic about it. Um, and then I got home and about three days later, a lady said to me that I might be able to get you a dodgy place in the London Marathon two weeks' time. Do you want it? And I said, Absolutely. And sh- should I get on the gym as well? And uh um, we, I can't, I won't say who because it's not fair. Because I know you shouldn't ever, and anyone listening, you should never run as someone else in a marathon. However, <laughs> what are they going to do to me, and so we're not,
1: um, not going to tell anyone. We won't tell anyone. Don't <laughs> Keep it so between ourselves.
2: Up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so, Jim and I turned up, and we got given these two numbers um, of celebrities, actually, and but we, <laughs> we couldn't have the timing chips because if you had the timing chip, then. Then we would appear on as we went over the timing plates, and someone would say, "Oh look, there's you know Ross Kemp cheering." <laughs> was, just the 4 hour. sure was a bit ill, you know. It's kind of a, <laughs> so, so yeah, so we no <laughs> and, and we didn't care because actually, like you know, we know how fast we run it or don't. So I said to Jim, "Come well, let's try another four-hour marathon." And we got about, and we we stayed with the four-hour pacer for about eight miles and then i felt fine and i said to jim like, i can't keep up the pace i said but you go you, you go on without me because your dreams are beat four hours so you stay with him and you do your four hours i said my wife's here we're in london there's so many i said i'm not going to fall over and even though i did there's so many medic people here to support me i'm never gonna have a real problem and i hadn't had a problem a bad problem all the time i've been training so he went and finished it he actually finished in 359 so i'm so tough for him because that was something he wanted to achieve. And I went down in 4.26. So oh, I was 12 minutes faster than two weeks before, but just loved it. You know, absolutely – when you're not worried about how fast you do things, you know, you high-five all the kids, you smile. I have my name on my shirt and, you know, everyone was calling my name out. It was it was fantastic, just really, really good fun. And, of course, you know, when you run, when you run past your charity stands, so in my case, Prostate Cancer UK, had a couple of stands – you know the, the cheer from them is amazing, makes it absolutely worthwhile. You know you're doing good for other people. I felt great. I was positive at home. So I'd gone from this, only briefly, but this period of what's the point, to there is a point, the point of training, eating healthily, understanding about stretching properly, buying lots of nice shiny new kit. All those things suddenly, even in a two-year death span, meant that I could still have some fun along the way so it was great so i did the race finished that fantastic got home and my wife said you need to go and do the race you always wanted to run and i said you sure i said yeah and so basically when i was 20 i ran my first half marathon i bought a magazine because there was no internet there were no great podcasts like yours so i bought a magazine and in it was the first ever marathon disables and i thought that race is mad. I would love to do that, but I'm never going to be fit enough or strong enough or anything else enough. Anyway, about three years before I got ill, for Christmas, I asked for the James Cracknell DVD of him doing the Marathon of Sables. And I made the whole family watch it on Christmas day. And I said to my wife, I want to do that. And she said, me, if you want to go and do it, it's fine. But just think about it. So the training, can you train? You're really busy at work. It's a week off work to do it. And it's pretty expensive. So, Right for the the cost and time of a family holiday in Spain you're going to go and do a race. And I thought about it. I thought she wasn't telling me not to do it. I just I hadn't really considered all of the reasons why you should or shouldn't do something. And I thought about it. I thought you're right I shouldn't do it. So I didn't do it. Anyway, and here we are now and she's saying go and do it. You know, it was the only thing I had on my bucket list go and do it. So I then thought, right, okay, now now what do I do then? <laughs> Um and I, I, I managed to find a coaching guy called Rory Coleman. Rory Coleman is the Marathon The Sables running god. He's done it about 15 times. He's run over a thousand marathons. I mean, he just he you knows all about long distance endurance stuff. So I went and saw him. He debunked a lot of the myths. So I, I'd say to anyone, if you're taking on a big challenge, get a coach, someone who's done it before, whatever you want to try and do, so they can put you right on some of the things in your head that don't make sense. Because then I had to tell my oncologist. So I told him – he was quite surprised I'd managed to run two marathons. And then when I told him what I was doing, he then said, why would anyone want to do that? Let alone someone in your situation. So so we kind of laughed a bit. And, Kevin, um, just, just before we – just just on yeah. that
0: point, how were the doctors about the exercise? Were they, were they sort of ambivalent or – what, what was their sort of approach to you doing this exercise, doing you? Because it was serious pieces
2: of exercise you're doing, you know, it's... Okay, so their opinions were don't do it. The, the opinion quite clearly from my doctor was you shouldn't exercise on chemo. You shouldn't, you know, you should look after yourself. You know, you've got a low immune system, so you can't afford to catch anything. Um, and you can't afford to damage your body in any other way. And just don't do it um, because
1: it, it, it is interesting, Kevin. Talking to uh, my mate Ben Chalicum, who's uh, associate professor, he's a uh, uh, sur- surgeon, effectively deals with prostate cancer all the time. I mean, I, I don't know what his situation is, what, what, his, what his view is on, on on exercising when in the middle of chemo, as you were doing. But yeah, you know, he's what he's saying is exercise is, is vital. So it's, it's interesting how how things have changed quite in quite a short period of time really um, uh, within the medical field saying that actual me- yeah you know, exercise is a, is, a, is a key component in, in dealing with this sort of this sort of problem
2: absolutely I mean you know my my doctor now the same I have, I'm lucky I have the same oncologist he's brilliant absolutely love him he's you know he's saved my life as well. I'm concerned in terms of we're well, not saving my life he's given me more years um, through some good choices he made and he says to me now, if you came to me today i would say run through chemo and i'd say go and do the stuff you've done so i might i might kind of not encourage you to run marathons but i'd encourage you to to certainly exercise quite hard as much as you currently do He so said i wouldn't encourage you to increase your exercise through chemo but i'd encourage you to carry on doing what you're doing and if you look at prostate cancer uk literature at the time it said if you can do some light gardening i remember reading that <laughs> <laughs> flakes, you know, I don't even do any gardening. I've got to start. Have I got to buy a trowel and start to plant begonias or something? I, it just—it was so. It was all written around old men with cancer. The whole, in fact, the whole industry of prostate cancer. People didn't want to accept their young people getting it. And from what I've seen, the younger you are, the more aggressive it is. So the old people who got it at 75, like my dad, you know, died with it, not of it. Um, but the younger people who get it seem to die more. And I've, I've lost friends in their 40s for prostate cancer who got it in their 30s with no symptoms at all. Um, and so it, it's, yeah, the exercise bit to me makes sense. You know, without, uh, the NHS is a wonderful thing. That's my first thing I'd say. However, one of the caveats about the NHS is, understandably, they won't approve anything unless there's been a multi, multi-million pound study on it to prove it. mm So there have been small studies in America with prostate cancer where they've got 12 men to exercise for an hour a day vigorously. I don't mean a stroll. We mean absolutely in the red zone for an hour a day, five days a week. And without exception, all of those men, all of their tumors shrunk and they all live longer than they thought they would, without exception. The problem is it's a small survey, a small study. It was done in America, you know, no one's going to do anything about it so for example um i take baby aspirin every day because it thins the blood and, and i believe faster blood flow helps your body naturally deal with the, the bad things in it i eat lots of broccoli um i do lots of things that i believe help help me live longer but if you ask the nhs about them they'll tell you not to do them and the reason they'll say is because there hasn't been a multi-million pound study on it And let's face it, the drugs I'm on now cost £36,000 a year to keep me alive. The makers of those drugs, I won't say, but they they don't want the cure for prostate cancer to be baby aspirin, exercise and broccoli (laughs) because there's no money in it. (laughs) But they're never going to do a multi-million pound study on it, which is why you need charities like Prostate Cancer UK and Cancer Research UK who will, I think right now at the Marsden Hospital where I go, there is an aspirin study funded by charity. Because no drug, no drug company wants a study that proves that aspirin that costs pennies might improve your situation. It doesn't mm. work for them. So I'm, I'm grateful for drug companies because without them, I wouldn't be alive. But they also do stall some of the things because they don't want to put research into things where there's no money. I don't blame them. It's a business, But that's which is why you need the NHS and why you need charities. Um, mm. you anyway, know, I've digressed a lot, but yeah, but, um,
0: no. well, it, it, definitely it, I had a sort of follow on question from that. So how, how do you, how do you, cause this is about you and how, what you feel really, how do you feel that the, the, the running, um, has as, has helped you and, and helped, helped kind of, you know, with that sort of prolonging that, that, that period of time, because, you know, you, you're well over your, your two year, you know, diagnosis.
2: Um, How's running help me? I think, okay, let's forget I've got cancer for a minute. I believe that for anyone, we all need an escape from reality sometimes. That could be fishing. That could be reading a book. For me, it's running. And for many, many people in this country, it's running. It's not about winning races. It's about just getting out there and pushing yourself a bit and clearing your head. And I find No matter how far I'm going to run, one, it's sometimes hard to get out the front door. But once you're out the front door, within about 15 minutes, I've cleared my head. Whatever rubbish was there, whether I was worried about something, whether I was had a project at work to do, or whatever it might be, my head is now clear. And once your head's clear, you can normally choose what you want to think about. So I could then choose to think about how I'm going to treat my family better, how I'm going to do something at work, how I'm going to write a presentation. And sometimes I've done some big races where I've spent literally 10 hours going over and over in my head, one presentation to get it absolutely perfect in my mind. So that when I finish that run, I feel absolutely, I feel like I've done something, I feel good. And I've now also resolved a problem that was hanging over me that i would never resolved at home. I would never have sat down for that amount of time to sort out that problem. It'd have been a distraction, but running just helps me do that. And 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 it's amazing. And then I go to the next bit, and it's one of my pet hates is what I call runners without a cause. Every runner, every runner should run for charity. Whatever charity they want, But they should run for charity. And some people said to me, oh, but Kevin, I run run part run every week, so I can't ask people to sponsor you for part run every week. I said, well, no, you can't. But you could ask people to sponsor you for part run for a year. You could say, I'm going to run 40 part runs this year. And therefore sponsor me, because that means every time you go training, every time you get out the front door, you're doing it to make sure you can do your part runs. Every time you do a part run, it's sort of payback for the people that have helped you and that have sponsored you and got you there. Is that motivation when it's hard not to give up? Is that motivation to go outside the front door when it's wet and cold? And then when you finish, not only is it about you and look at me, I got the medal or I got the best time, whatever you're trying to do, you also do it for other people. And so for me, running has given me a sense of purpose, as in staying mentally good for my family and my friends. It's given me a purpose by raising money for Prostate Cancer UK. It's given me purpose by raising awareness. It's given me purpose by proving to anyone with any challenge in their life that it's up to you. You can choose to be that victim every day if you want to be, or you can go out there and have a go. And then it also gives me a sense of worth. So I feel that my life now, I've had, I have more value than I had before I was ill. I mean, I wish I never got cancer, but I've done more for other people in seven years than I ever did beforehand. I've visited more places than I ever would have done if I'd lived till I was 90. I've met some amazing people, such amazing people that I would never have met if I hadn't done the running. And I believe I've saved lives, and I believe I've inspired people to go and have their best life like I'm having now. And and so you say, why do I go running? Because of all those things, you know, all those things. And and no matter how bad I feel, I will always go out the front door and try and go for a run. I had a, I, I've had done lots and lots of races. I did the Mouth and the Sables in 2016 and loved that race. Really hard, mentally dug deep. I remember in the middle of a salt flat on the long days, a double marathon day, I was about 30 miles to go. It was probably 40 degrees centigrade in the shade and there wasn't any shade. I had my my shoulders were raw from the pack, which weighs about 12 kilos, I had massive blisters on my feet. I remember shuffling and just bursting into tears and thinking, I can't do this. I need to stop. And I thought, but what's the point of stopping? Because if I stop... Number one, everyone that sponsored me, I've been a fraud. I've given up just because it hurt a bit. <laughs> and I wasn't physically cropped. it just was hurting a bit. And then I thought, and all those people, all the naysayers that told me I couldn't do it, all those people that pat me on the back said, yeah, go on, Kev, have a try, but didn't think I'd do it. I'll be just giving them am- ammunition to say to anyone else, yeah, when you're ill, you can't do these things. Kevin tried and he can't do it. So, I wanted for them, I wanted to carry on to but not just to prove them wrong to go like no, 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 but to, to prove them wrong so that they would never discourage anyone from chasing a dream if they had a dream. And finally, I thought when I get home with that medal, it won't just be about all about Kev. Look at me. I got a medal. It will be about, look at me. I did this for other people. I raised a shed load of money for other people. I think I raised about 30 grand that year. and that was like really really important to me and so within a minute of feeling sorry for myself that was it i was back on and finished i think i came about 560 something out of 1200 people that year and just goes to show what can be done with cancer if i can do that what's stopping anyone and that those mental mental thoughts of why is why everyone needs to raise money for a charity because it will get them out the door it will keep them going when it's tough and they'll have a sense of worth at the end and pride when they've done it for other people rather than just look at me. So I, and I got back from that MDS and I, I remember crossing the finish line I'm thinking, never, ever, ever again. But you
1: did. I sense a butt coming
0: along.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was on the plane and then all these, there's a charter plane. So all the Brits were on this plane and the buzz is amazing. And I just thought, I just want this buzz again. I want I want to be able to pull out my bedroll at night and look at the brightest ever stars with no light pollution. The only time I've ever seen that before, by the way, is yacht racing when you're in the middle of the ocean somewhere where there's no light pollution. It's just a sight to see when there's no light anywhere for miles around. I, you know, the, the the blue sky is a blue that you never get in England. The, the yellow sand is so golden. And, you're, and the people you meet are just amazing. It's just an amazing experience so i, I got home and i thought how can i ask my wife if I can do this again <laughs> and i got home and i've been home for about 10 minutes and she said well have you, have you entered next year yet and i said no well what, you better do it then and so and that was because she realized that a happy kevin brought so much more not just to me and the charity and stuff but to the family and my friends so she openly encouraged me to do these things she always said you know if it all went wrong, she'd rather it goes wrong when I'm doing something I love than being in some hospice with some tubes out my nose. And, you know, so she's right. I don't think she's after an early demise from me, but she's after me just doing the best I can do and enjoying it along the way. So, so that was it. I, you didn't have to tell me that twice. Bang, I was signed up again. And then, I, and then I met you. One of the great things about ultramarathons is that unlike a marathon, and apologies to everyone that likes run marathons, it doesn't matter how long you take. You know, I, I, I rattled off my marathon times earlier. That's because that's what you do when you run a marathon. Everyone remembers it. I cannot even tell you how long it took me to do the MDS. I could, 50-something hours, 50, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you, 50-something hours. I couldn't tell you how long any day was in particular. Um, it's just a long way, and that's good enough when I managed to finish. And so I met all these people that, you know, you can chat on an ultramarathon. You walk up hills, it's great, you chat. You get to a checkpoint, not on the MDS, but other races where there's loads of sweets and biscuits and you just stuff your face and off you go again. So it's just an amazing, amazing event at ultramarathons. So since then, I've, I've run the Marathon Disciples four times. I'm, I think, the only person with any T4 cancer ever to do that. Um, I've run 250-kilometer races in Iceland, Cambodia, Albania, Jordan, uh, in the jungles in Africa, I uh, did a race called the 6633 Arctic Ultra twice pulling a sledge nonstop across the arctic um which is probably the hardest race I've ever done because it's like minus 40 minus 50 and you are very much on your own in that race there's only 20 people in it so you are very much on your own um and I, and I love all those races gave me new friends new experiences reasons to to shock people into thinking if you can do that why can't I do something normally far less challenging, but they're they're scared of putting their foot on the start line. And I remember when I I got off the plane in Morocco the first year of the MDS, and I got off the plane and thought, I never thought I would be here. All I want to do now is start. I don't care if I don't finish. I mean, obviously, I wanted to finish, but but, uh, to me, just putting my foot on the start line was enough. And metaphorically, that's what we all have to do in life. It's about... Whatever your challenge is, just put your foot on the start line, train the best way you can for it, read, listen to people, know yourself, and then have a go. And surprise, surprise, most of the time you'll succeed. Um, So I've run, I think I've run about 15,000 miles since I was diagnosed. And I just keep going. And, and, you know, when COVID came along, uh, the MDS was cancelled only about a month before. So it was March 2020, it was cancelled. And all I could see on the Facebook groups were people saying, "Oh, all this trainings wasted," and what, and all moans. Basically, I didn't see a good word anywhere. And you turn the TV on, and the BBC were telling you you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. You know, you can't. Boris says you can't do this now either. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to prove to people what you still can do. So I ran the marathon of so I was in my back garden. I did 2,600 laps a week, exactly the same format as the race the year before. So I did. Marathon, 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 double marathon, marathon, half marathon, just to prove you could do it. And and I managed to inspire loads of people. I was doing a Facebook live every hour, and people ended up on the last day running around their back gardens. I've got scouts doing it, school kids, friends, people I didn't even know were messaging me saying I'm I'm doing five miles around my back garden today because of you. And it's just it's amazing. Those just telling me what they can do, giving people permission is so important, which is why I do a lot of speaking, because people are, are scared to say they've got prostate cancer. They're scared to say they've got something wrong with them. They're scared to say they've got depression. And, and, and probably one of the, the best examples of that is I've done lots of solo walks on my own to raise money. I did this walk in the north of England. I started from Blythe Spartans Football Club, and I walked on all these non-league grounds to try and raise a bit of awareness. And what i do each day, when I finish the walk each day, I was doing about a marathon and a bit each day, I would go into a pub by the football ground I was finishing at and have a beer. And I'd always have the football shirt on of the club I was walking to. And I remember I got to Hartlepool and of course all these people look at me, I've got a Hartlepool shirt on, prostate cancer, banners and buckets, and I'm on my own. And they sort of look at me like, you're not from around here, are you? I said, no. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've just walked from Blythe Spartans to here. For prostate cancer, why is that? And I then say, well, I've got prostate cancer. And the next thing, they're all sticking 10 quid in the pot. And the next thing, there's a guy in the bar in the corner. And bear in mind, if you can picture a bar at 5 o'clock at night, it's the, the working men, just finished work, having a beer or two before they go home. And this guy suddenly goes, I've got prostate cancer. And they all look at him. And they say, never told us. He said, well, I just thought, you know, you wouldn't want to know. It's a bit private. It's down there. And of course, then suddenly all the attention went from me to their friend that had prostate cancer. They had no you know, he was suffering in silence. He didn't share it. And then two days later I went to Harrogate, doing the same thing I up at Harrogate town. I deliberately get there early, go to the pub rather than go to the football ground first. And there talking to people, a guy goes, I've got prostate cancer. It, it was like a mirror image of it. And so there are all these people who have got things wrong with them, challenges could be they can't afford to pay for something, you know, their car's broken down, they can't fix it, they've got problems with their partner at home, they've got problems with their children at school, and they won't share it because there's they're, a bit of almost being ashamed, and it's not their fault. You know, prostate cancer is something you just get, you, know, you don't do anything wrong to get prostate cancer. It's not like, no offense to those that do, but, you know, lung cancer is proven to be worse if you smoke a lot. So you kind of bring it on yourself sometimes. Prostate cancer is nothing that they know that brings it on to yourself. So we have to all be aware of other people. And if you get a call from a friend saying, do you fancy a beer at the pub tonight? And you just go, no, not tonight. I'm not going to come. You don't know if the reason why you got that call is because that friend right there and then had to get out of the house. There might be something on their mind. There might be a problem at home that they can't share. They might just need an escape valve. And if they don't run, where's their escape valve? They might just want to share something. And by you saying, no, I don't want to go out for a beer with you, where else should they go? You might have been their only hope for a bit of escape that night. So, so now I never say no to people. It doesn't mean to say you've got to get bladdered on 10 pints of stella. It just means if someone asks you to come around or help them or have a chat, always give them the time because so you never know what they're going to, you know, what is an underlying issue, what they want to tell you. It might be nothing. You know, hopefully most of the time it's not, but you, just, you don't know that. So you need to give people that time. Anyway, uh, I know I've, I've digressed, but it's it's just challenging yourself and 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 thinking about what I want to achieve. And you know, diets is a great one. How many people say they want to lose weight and they don't, and they don't because they don't actually stick to the diet. And then you start saying, "Well, how much did you want it then?" So if you want to be lighter for a race, if you want to, you know, how many, I run around Richmond Park quite a lot. You had Richmond Park; it's full of cyclists, love them, and they're all in lycra. They've, some of the wealthy ones near Richmond have got these bikes that are made of titanium and they sit there at the coffee shop telling their mates how they've just spent a thousand pounds on a new <laughs> chain wheel crank thingy, whatever, that weighs four grams less than the previous one. Whilst they're sticking a Danish pastry in their mouth that's putting on five grams. And you, and you see that all the time. I'm thinking, if these people are serious about riding their bikes faster, the first thing they could do to lose, lose weight of the overall thing is them you know, if that comes, just stop playing like, in any, any size larger than large, because if, if I do triple, triple XL means the person needs to lose some weight, so they need to actually, and, and I appreciate some people can't, and I, I apologize, everywhere. people actually just, whose weight issues are they can't stop eating, they need to look at themselves and actually improve their lives, because otherwise they're going to end up, like me, with an illness, and if they're not fit enough to fight it, their journeys gonna be probably a far more grim than mine is and far far quicker. And you know, when I got diagnosed, I got to know about 20 men who all had the same as me, so prostate cancer that had spread. and they'd all been given the same prognosis, you know two years, maybe, maybe three or four. Some only made three months, some only made six months. There's only one still alive. And that guy, a guy called Tony, and guess what? Tony runs all the time. Tony's 65, and Tony runs every day. So there's me and Tony that run all the time, and we change our diets a bit, and we exercise more. We don't drink quite as much. We don't smoke. We try and eat more healthily. Some of the guys that died, they just went on Jack Daniels and pie and chips. I mean, if anyone does that, and someone that has got cancer, they're going to invite an illness sooner. So, you know, everyone knows – if you have a choice of v- more vegetables or more meat, you should cho- choose more vegetables. If you more or less booze, less booze. More or less exercise, more exercise. Processed or not processed food, not processed food. Those are very simple choices that everyone should make, not just people with cancer, because everyone will be more healthy. And then if you if you're more healthy, then you enjoy life more. And the more you enjoy it, your good nature then rubs off on other people, and then everyone has a better life. You know, when you look out in the morning and you're going to work and it's raining, you've got two thoughts in your head. You can either go, "Oh God, it's raining! I'm going to get wet. That's going to be terrible." And if you do that, you're going to, you know, you'll upset your family. You're going to work miserable. You get to the office, you make everyone miserable. Or you go, "Oh, it's raining. That new Gore-Tex top I bought for that ultra marathon I'm going to run. <laughs> I think I'll put that on because that's going to be brilliant. To try that out." And so you've got a big smile on your face. You've got your new shiny new waterproof on. Your wife doesn't get sad because you're happy about trying out your waterproof. You get to work dry, and you're smiling. Oh, I've got a new waterproof, and it worked really well. And surprise, surprise, everyone has a better day, including you. And it's all because you chose at the outset not to be a victim of the circumstance. And my wife always says to me, if you wake up in the morning and you feel okay, that's all okay, it's going to be a good day. That's it. Start the morning, it's going to be a good day. And if you start your head saying it's going to be a good day – no matter what comes your way, it's going to be a good day. You get through it. I, I, people say to me, but Kev, you go to the Royal Marsden, it's a cancer hospital. it must be an awful day. You go there twice a month. I say, well, the only bad bit about cancer hospitals, the only bad bit is seeing other people with cancer. And, and the worst is actually seeing children with cancer because it's awful. You know, there's no, if you've never been to a cancer hospital, it is awful. You know, you see people like kids with tubes out of their nose and no hair and stuff. It's, it's heartbreaking because they even haven't even had a life yet and it's already a struggle for them. However, for me, beyond that, I see the, my cancer hospital as part of my training. Without them, I can't run. Therefore, they're important. Therefore, I see it as a positive, not a negative. You know, it's like they're like my coach. I can't – my coach makes you run better. My diet makes you run better. Listen to running podcasts makes you run better. I hear people's opinions Reading makes you run better. Eating the right food makes you run better. Not getting bladdered on a Saturday night for a race on Sunday helps you run better. All those things help you run better, as does my treatment for prostate cancer. So, you know, it's like everyone likes eating. So don't ever see the dentist as a bad person. The dentist is the person that helps you enjoy your food. So, why would you see the dentist as a bad person? And once you get your mindset into everything you do has a positive reason because it in some way helps you do what you want to achieve, like if you've got a bad job, it's rubbish, but you still get paid. If that pay means that you get a holiday, if that pay means you can afford to buy a new pair of running shoes or put food in your mouth that can enable you to go out and run, then the job's not all bad, is it? Because it makes you do something you want to do.
0: And- I love the way you've reframed <laughs> your mindset now in terms of the the, the, the the hospital and the cancer treatment helps you run, whereas. Sort of before it was almost, you know, the other way, the other way around. The the run in helped, helped you cancel. I'm sure it's probably a circular thing, but, but that positive mindset is, is just incredible. I I wondered, have you, have you felt a shift in your mindset
2: through those, Um, through these last seven, seven years? Yeah, absolutely. I I don't, I don't have bad days anymore. Um, I've (laughs) learned, okay, there's two, Two mind tricks I, I've learned. And I, I've, I've stolen them from other people, by the way, so they're not my tricks I dreamt up. The first I, I stole from a an old film I saw when I was about 20. And it's a I can't remember what the film's called, but it's um, it's one where the czars of Russia will get killed at the end by the revolutionaries. And there's a bit at the end where the royal family, the Russian royal family, are standing in a room and they're about to get shot. And there's a young girl, and I might I have might remembered this wrong, but there's a young girl, maybe it's Anastasia or someone, I don't know, and she looks at her older sister or her mother, and her mother looks at her and says, think happy thoughts. And the girl closes her eyes, and then they all get shot. And I, and I remember that vividly, and I bring that into my life. Whenever there's a challenge, whenever something's rubbish, I go, think happy thoughts. And the, and the trick about happy thoughts is to have them all ready for you. So don't wait until you have a problem. Have it already there. So my happy thoughts are things like crossing line the MDS, the birth of my kids, great Holland Disney with my family, running my best mate gym when I had chemo. Those are thoughts I can bring in my head straight away. So if something bad happens, I can pull those in my head, normally within about 10 seconds. So the bad only lasts for 10 seconds because already I'm – back on a race again in my head. I'm back with my family. I'm back doing good things. And the rubbish stuff has just disappeared because I've I've just thought happy thoughts. And those, those thoughts are so strong and so powerful. They trump pretty much everything, pretty much everything. I mean, I'm sure, you know, and if I was living in Ukraine right now, you might say it doesn't trump that. But for most things in my life, the life that I have, it trumps all the bad stuff that comes my way. So I don't ever have a bad day because those bad thoughts disappear. I, I did the, the marathon Desires. I did it again last year. So the fifth my fifth MDS, and I was really looking forward to it. It was in October rather than April. I trained quite well for it. I'd done lots, and I in fact I'd run every day. It was my I'd done six hundred and fifty five days consecutive running. I'd run average of thirteen kilometers a day. So I'd I'd run a long way. I think I did five thousand k last year. So I'd run a long way. I was fit enough for it and the night before the race started out there in the desert, they feed you for for three, four meals the night before I started being ill. And I was ill on the start line, and both ends were coming out, and I managed 15 kilometers. And at 15 kilometers, they had a helicopter to me off the course. In a medic tent, I had seven and a half liters of drip put into me, and that was the end of my race, the end of my running streak. And someone said to me, I came out of the medic tent, after, uh, you know, 48 hours there, and they said to me, God, that must have really made you upset, you know, didn't do the MDS and, and you're running streaks over. I looked at them and I said, yeah, for about two minutes. I said, the MDS was so yesterday, it's gone. You know, I can't change it. It's gone. And what's the point? What would I have achieved by being sad anymore? So then what they do, they bus you back to the hotel where you wait for all the successful people to finish. And in years gone by, when I've finished it, I've always felt sad about those people because they've always sat in corners in the hotel. You can see they, you know, they, they in their mind, they failed and they didn't fail. They just failed to finish. There's a big difference. And I thought, I don't want the people that finished to come back feeling embarrassed anyway about those of us that didn't finish. As it happened last year, over 50% didn't finish because the bug went through the whole camp. It was, I think, one of the hottest years on record and half the field never finished. So I think there were like 400 dropouts. And I I rallied the people back at the hotel, the Brits, because it's a British hotel where we finished. There's not a hotel big enough for us all to be in there together. So the Brits are in one hotel. I said, right, when they come back off the race, we're going to meet them on the steps of the hotel and we're going to give them the best welcome they've ever had. So put them in no mind that we're delighted that they finished, that they are treated like the running gods that they are because they finished the race. We're not ashamed about what we did. We tried our best. It just wasn't to be. And sure enough, most of the people went on the steps of the hotel and applauded and sung and patted people on the back and carried their bags for them. And that's to me, that was the best ever finish of the MDS because it was just a joyous thing. We wanted to hear their stories about how hard it was. We wanted to hear where day four went because we never got that far. It was just amazing. So, you know, but mentally it was one of those things. It, it was a happy thing. So, I, I, yeah, I stole that from, from an old film. The other thing I stole was from a – and I can't remember the author of the book, which is a real shame on me. It was a, an ultra-running book by an American guy. And um, he had a – as a chapter in it called The What and the Why. And he says, sometimes you have to think, what are you doing? And sometimes you have to think, why are you doing it? And if you get the two confused, it's disaster. So in running terms, when you're packing your rucksack for the MDS about to start one of the day's races, it has to be, what am I doing? So I need my snacks near the top, my salt tablets, my map, my road book, my anti-venom pump, it it has to get bitten by a snake or scorpion. All that's got to be within my hand's reach. Don't bury that because I'll need it. And if you need it and it's buried, you won't bother. And if you don't bother when you need it, then it could be race over. So that's about what, the real Desmond detail. The why is what I did when I was stuck in the middle of the desert and I was crying my eyes out and thought I couldn't go on. That's when I thought, why am I doing this? I'm doing this for all those reasons. And again, just like my Anastasia bit about happy thoughts, you have to think about your what what and your why before you even start the event. So if you're doing like a massive cycle race, you've got to think about when your legs are burning, And you haven't got to think at all. You've got to think, why am I doing it? I'm doing this because I want to beat my PB. I'm doing this because I'm raising money. I'm doing this because I want to get back to watch whatever it is on you tonight. I'm doing it for those reasons. And that will inspire you and keep you going. But when you're getting your kit ready for a triathlon, it's absolutely the detail. That's not about, let's think about the medal. That's about, like, make sure my shoes are there. Make sure my bike's ready there. I know what number I am. I've got it on my leg. I've got my splits on my arm written. That's about the detail. So the what and the why is something we should do in every part of our life because you know, if you've got some boring job in a factory and you start going, what am I doing? You're gonna, you know, if it's a bore, you're know, just going to slash your wrists. But if you go, why am I I'm doing this job? Because it means I get paid. And when I get paid, it means on well, a Friday night and go out with my friends and have a few beers and have a laugh. That's what you think. You go, you go on the why. So in every aspect of our lives, we have to remember – what we're doing and why we're doing it and think of the right thing at the right time. So there you go. That's my next running tip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, I mean, it's a great, it's a great point to kind of sort of draw things to a close. We normally ask uh, all of our guests two final things to finish. Um, I don't know about you, Greg, but I kind of, I kind of feel like I know what the answers are for these.
1: Yeah. We still need to hear it though. Don't we? Yeah, we do
0: okay take
1: it away um, right so this is a uh, desert island disc of exercise we know what one of them is going to be but if you if you could only do two types of exercise for the rest of your life what would they be and why well we've heard why for one of them
2: <laughs> okay so the first one's running and the second one's yep. running
1: <laughs> fair enough we'll give you that you're allowed that
2: But, but actually I'll tell you one thing though it's not exercise but it's something else I know one day my cancer will stop me running and because of that I've got an electric guitar and an amp that I can't play yet and the day when I can't run anymore that's when I'm prepared for the next stage which is when I will learn to play the guitar and when I can't play the guitar anymore I've got a load of box sets I'd never watch I'd love to watch telly but it's a waste of life why would you want to stay in and watch telly when you can go for a run? So I don't watch box sets on telly, but I want to watch them, but they're safe for the time when I'm in a hospice somewhere and all I can do is watch telly because right now I've got roads to run and trails to run. I haven't got time to waste watching telly. You know, I can watch a film here and there, but I can't sit through 63 hours of The Only Way is Essex. In fact, <laughs> in fact why would anyone – I was <laughs> <laughs> going to say that. Yeah, that is, yeah. that's maybe, maybe the wrong example. <laughs> but on the but you know, on your deathbed, no one will say, even if they're 100 years old, oh, I'm really upset I missed that e- episode of X Factor in July 2026. They're not going to say that, but they might say, I'm really upset. Why didn't I do that race when I could? Why didn't I help that person when I could? It haunted me all my life. So they should help them when they run the race and they do the challenge they want to do. Sorry, You're that's
1: not. the first question. No, no, that, okay. Second question is the uh, Groundhog Day of exercise. So is there a moment in your exercise history which you would want to replay, redo, go over again and again each day? And what is it?
2: Oh, You've probably
1: yeah. got quite a few to choose from.
2: Yeah, yes, 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 and yes. Um, and I guess I'll tell you what, When I when, another thing I learned when I was running – when I was training for my first marathon on chemo, when it got tough, I remember visualizing what it would be like to cross the finish line. So when it got really, really tough and everything hurt, and I I mean, one day it was raining, a a truck had gone through a puddle, I was soaking wet from this puddle, and I was thinking, again, I can't go on, and I stopped for a few seconds. and And then I visualized, I thought, actually, I want that vision of me running across the finish line with my arms in the air, knowing I finished. And that's the vision. It's not a particular race. It's that vision of crossing the finish line with my arms in the air. So whether that be park run next weekend, or whether that be me you know my next event, I've just had a double hernia, so I can't run at the moment, which is absolutely torturous for me, as you can imagine. So my next challenge isn't running, it's going to be walking. So I'm going to walk from London to Tipperary not just because it's a long way, but it's, 960- <laughs> well, I thought it was, uh, it's it's 968 kilometers, and that's because 968 men die every month of prostate cancer in the UK. So every kilometer I walk, another man when have died, which is pretty scary. Um, mm. and, that's what, and so that's my next challenge because, like I said, I can't run as I want to at the moment. I will. I'll come again, but right now I can't. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is being outside and walking. So I've got a mate who's gonna do it with me not he has nothing to do with prostate cancer at all he's gonna join me and that's the value of friends Friends help people like me get through the issues I have in life so you know we're doing that and we calling it our trip to tip um and we're gonna and we're going to have us we're gonna do twenty miles a day we're gonna have a few guinnesses every night we're gonna meet people along the way i'm I'm hoping to do a presentation every day to someone at school to a GP surgery, a business, just to tell them to get out there and live live their best life because, you know, we will never have today again. Um, there's a poem called Beyond the Bend in the Road and that's, it's a fantastic poem. I'm not a poet, I'm not a poem fan. Fantastic poem and the, the nut, the, the crux of it is don't worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. All you have to worry about is what's actually right in front of you now. It's a real mindfulness thing and that's how we all should live our life. Don't worry about I might lose this tomorrow. That might go wrong tomorrow. If today is okay, just enjoy the now, and just make it a memory. You know. So I'm answering your question with lots of answers. But no, no. My, my last thing for you. I have three missions in life, and everyone should share these. Number one, enjoy yourself every day, but never ever at the expense of someone else. Number two, make the best memories for you, your family, and friends. And number three do something good every day as well. And if you can do that, those three, every day, you'll have a life fulfilled and full of value.
0: Wow. Um, I will, for listeners, uh, I'll find the link, or somehow Kevin will give me the link uh, for your next challenge so that if any listeners want to contribute for the fundraising, we can, uh, we, we'll share that.
1: Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, You're you're absolutely inspirational, as I thought it would be. Um, So much philosophy there as well as as anecdotes. So it's been an absolutely wonderful uh, evening spent with you. Thank you very much indeed.
0: One of the dangers of recording online is losing connection. And unfortunately, Kevin's connection just dropped. Uh, If you didn't catch it, Kevin's next challenge is to walk uh, 963 kilometers from London to Tipperary in Ireland. And we'll post the fundraising page in the show notes if you'd like to uh, donate. Mm.